Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. We have been going through what? John. What do we remember from John? Okay, so it was written about 80, 90, um, or, or, or give or take. So a significant amount of passed from the events to when John is writing his gospel. What else do we remember? Okay, so John recounts John the Baptist's ministry. And what was the significance that John tied to John the Baptist? There's a word that starts with a T and ends with Oni. Yeah, John was announcing the coming of someone. Exactly. But why does John, the, the author, emphasize John the Baptist? It's not him. He does make that clarification. John the Baptist, it's, he's going out and making that way straight and, and making sure that people are paying attention. Hey, something greater than me is coming. But why does the author, John, emphasize John the Baptist? It starts with a T and ends with Oni. His testimony, right? Uh, and, and it might be a little bit of a zigzaggy way of getting there. Um, but the, the author, John, uses testimonies throughout his entire book to emphasize what fact? That Jesus is the Son of God, right? Uh, and and where, uh, where Wayne is mentioning, the key verse is in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And what are those? Yeah. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing you may have what? Life in His name. Whose testimonies have we seen so far in the book of John? We talked about John the Baptist. Andrew, Nathaniel. Bob, I cut you off, sorry. What else did you say? Who else have we seen? Yeah. John, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, um, this other disciple that's not named, and they all, uh, the testimony that they, that is recorded all point again to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So going back to that key verse, that key theme that uh, Wayne mentioned, um, why did Jesus perform signs? So that they may believe. What sign did we talk about last week? Changing water into wine. And what is the key takeaway that we should have from that miracle? That greater things were going to come because of Jesus. Right? The takeaway of that miracle is not, did Jesus make the wine alcoholic or non-alcoholic wine? The key takeaway we see in verse 11. Would someone read verse 11 of John chapter 2 to us, please? So this was the first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. And what was the result of this first sign? They believed. The people who were there, the disciples that were with him, believed. So we have a sign, we have belief. Is this the first sign that we have seen in the Gospel of John? And this is what Cliff kind of alluded to last week about the argument, because I, I argue that there's more signs. Um, Nick will go to seven. He, he's, he's taught, he's a, a professionally trained dude. I'm just a simple layman. 
Um, he wants to have it nice, tied up in this nice, pretty, nice, pretty package of seven, um, because that's the biblical representation of perfect. And there may be something there, uh, but I see a little bit more. When we see signs, signs are tied to what? The purpose of signs that Jesus performed is to get what result? People to believe. How did Jesus convince Nathaniel that he was something special? He said, I saw you underneath the fig tree. And the result of Jesus saying that was what? What was the result of Jesus telling Nathaniel, I saw you underneath the fig tree? It was at that point that he believed that Jesus was who uh, Andrew was, right? Or Philip, excuse me, was saying that he was. We have a sign that resulted in belief. So I would argue that um, Jesus telling Nathaniel that I saw underneath the fig tree is a sign because it produced belief. The same with this water into wine. Jesus performed this miracle, and that miracle resulted in the people believing. And we ended up our class last week with a, a, a really cool little story that John throws in here. What is that little story? Starting in verse 13. In John chapter 2, verse 13, what do we start seeing? Jesus is upset. And what is upsetting Jesus? Money changers doing what? Robbing the people. Stealing the people. Remember... Last week, Cliff uh, had a, he, he kind of, he talks really fast, and I struggle with the same thing. I talk really fast, too. Um, but he threw something in, um, and I went back through and listened to it, and just on a little plug, um, we, we're putting all the, the, Bible, or the Sunday morning Bible class and the Sunday morning sermon up, not only on Facebook and YouTube, but it's up in podcast form, uh, which a lot of people are listening to uh, in replace of, like, FM radio nowadays. Um, and so if that is something that you're interested in, they are available there. So I went back through and listened to it. Um, and, and he just, I mean, he just threw so much at us. But one thing he discussed was blasphemy. And what is the, the key thing, that, uh, if you remember the point he made about blasphemy? Does anyone remember it? Again, I got a heads up on you because I listened to it just a, about an hour ago. But he made the response that that is kind of blasphemy. Um, it is tied in with... Uh, using religion to abuse people. And that's what these um, money changers were doing. They were using religion for personal gain. They were using religion to abuse people. And we see it throughout. Uh, that, that would, or throughout our world today, unfortunately, we see people who are using God's name in vain to abuse people. There was this, this big scandal that blew up about a very influential um, apologist um, who used his influence to uh, manipulate and abuse a bunch of women. And after his death, this all came to light. And it's a very sad, sad fact because this man did so much good in preaching, but this man's life outside didn't align with it. And in talking to these women, it was, uh, he, he used the terminology that God has blessed us with this opportunity. God has done this. And you can clearly see that that is blasphemous. That is using religion to abuse people. The same as the money changers here. So what did Jesus do when he saw... Do you have a comment, Tom? Yeah. Tom was saying it's in the temple, a holy place. That is where they were doing this. That is where they set up shop. That is where they extorted additional money out of these people who were there just to worship. So what did Jesus do? 
He made a whip and drove them out. Not the happiest of occasions where he goes up and kindly taps him on the shoulder and says, would you kindly stop this? Don, do you have a comment? Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, uh, if you didn't hear Don's comment, is that Jesus took action. Instead of merely coming over here and talking to someone else and saying, I can't believe how horrible that situation is, Jesus stepped up and did something about it. He stepped up and did something about it. And it was done in a way that raised some eyebrows, don't I? Yeah, there's so many roots to it. And I was talking with the, the teens a couple weeks ago. Um, why did Cain kill Abel? And, and trust me, I, I think that this ties in with, with some of this stuff, or especially your comment. Jealousy, right? When we are presented with an ideal, Abel was the ideal. His sacrifice was, was, was deemed worthy by God. That was the ideal. Cain's sacrifice, for some reason, was not worthy. Instead of Cain using Abel as I'm going to try to emulate what he's doing to grow relationship with God, what did Cain do? He eliminates him. He wants to tear down that ideal because when we see something with ideal, we automatically judge ourselves, right? Uh, when we see someone who is, is more physically fit than we are, what do we start doing? I'm just going to cover this shirt up a little bit more and, um, and then maybe just suck in just a little bit, right? Um, and then it's like, well, why does he need to work out that much? He needs to stop. He needs to not do that. Because I will judge myself according to this other person's ideal and want to tear them down instead of using that as motivation to build me up. In the Pharisees, we see uh, that throughout. They saw Jesus as this ideal, and they judged themselves and deemed themselves unworthy when compared to Jesus, as, I mean, as we all will. Uh, but ultimately, they destroyed Jesus because he was pointing out their uh, inabilities. Uh, the same with these people, I'm sure, who are around in the temple. They stood around and allowed this to happen, but did not do anything about it. Jesus did. What's the result of Jesus driving these people out of the temple? Yeah. Yeah, and that's what Jesus came in. He didn't wait for permission. He just jumped right in. When he drives these money changers out, he says that this is my father's house, right? Um, you are making my father's house a house of trade. What was the result of Jesus driving these money changers out? Yeah, so they get in, in verse uh, 18, we, we, uh, the Jews start asking a sign, but I want to jump back a little bit. What does verse 17 say? Someone read verse 17 for us. The disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal for my house. The disciples remembered. So we saw in verse 12, uh, verse 12, verse 11, um, that the disciples believed in him because of a sign, right? Here we see that the disciples remembered the zeal for my father's house will consume me. The disciples believed. Their belief was, was reinforced by this sign that Jesus performed. This driving people out of the temple was a sign. Uh, we often will, will get into thinking that signs are, are miracles, some miraculous event. But throughout the Gospel of John, we understand that the signs were designed for a specific purpose. John records signs for what purpose? So that we may believe. Driving people out of the temple was a sign that people may believe in Jesus. And that belief was centered around the zeal for his father's house. We stopped right there last week. We'll go ahead and jump in 
in verse 18. Um, would someone read verses 18 through 22 for us? Thank you. So, after Jesus drove people out of the temple, the Jews come up to him and say, hey, 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 we, 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 need, we need something for this. And what are they asking for? They're asking for a sign. But what did Jesus just do? He just did a sign. Right? And we're going to see in chapter 9, I think, of John, of the blindness of people. Uh, and I think John's going to use that example in chapter 9 to discuss how blind we are to things. We see here that Jesus just performed this sign. His disciples got it later. I think probably some of the Jews got it later, but at that time they didn't. Instead, they asked for another sign. They asked for a sign. And what did Jesus reply? How did, what did he respond with? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Were they able to grasp what, Je- what Jesus was saying at that point? Nope. How can you do that in three days? It took how many years? Forty-six years. That, that's impossible. But what was Jesus talking about? His body. His resurrection. Did the, did the disciples get this at that time? How do we know that they did not get this? They remembered it later. So we see a couple occasions here where the disciples are seeing something that Jesus is doing, and it came back later that, oh, okay, that's why we did that. Have you ever experienced something like that in life where you have absolutely no idea why I'm asked to do something or why this is happening, and then all of a sudden all the pieces fall in place a little bit later and say, oh, okay. That light comes on, right? And so it's, it's, that's where it, it's critical for us to understand the why behind what we're asked to do or the why behind any situation because while my little piece of that puzzle was fairly small, someone else might have a different piece and we all fit together to accomplish that goal. The goal here is to show and tell people that Jesus is the Son of God. And by telling them and showing them these signs, they may have believed. Marty, you had a comment? Yeah, uh, Marty's comment was in the Old Testament, worship took place in the temple. Now it takes place in Christ. We're going to see in John 8, uh, the Samaritan woman, that, that there is coming a time when you will worship in spirit and in truth. They were not able at that time to understand what Jesus was talking about. And, and this is what I alluded to a little bit last week. Um, more so than any other gospel, we can take John and look for the spiritual significance, the underlying significance associated with what he's talking about. John is talking in very uh, poetically, if you will, um, to where he, he gives the layer upon layer upon layer. And we see a little glimpse of that here because he clearly calls out that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. John is more concerned about the spiritual meaning than he is the physical meaning. And we're going to continue to see this three days in Passover um, connection tied all the way through. But also, interestingly, tied to um, the Jewish purification vessels that we saw begin in chapter 2. Jesus took something Jewish and made it better. Something for a Jewish purpose and made it better, right? The water in the, the vessels for the Jewish purification, right? Jesus took that and made it into something better. The same with the temple. The temple is around for Jewish worship. Jesus took that temple, or the concept of that temple, and did what to it? He made it better. 
by tying himself to that temple. Thoughts or comments up to verse 22. Yeah, uh, and so they're challenged with something that they should have been seeing, but because of their preconceived notions, they, they completely missed it. Uh, and the same holds true with, with us. I can go back, and I'm embarrassed on some things that I have argued in the past um, that I may not have been standing on as firm of ground as I thought I was. Um, and, and we argue from a position of just wanting to win and maintain that power, whether it's a political power or just power in the argument, um, that we kind of miss the point. The disciples, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Sorry. And, and why did the common man know more or, or, or grasp Jesus? Well, why was the common man able to grasp who Jesus was? They're, they're interested and they're passionate with him. They're following him around. They're, they're spending time with him. They're seeing what he's doing. And if we spend time with Jesus, are we going to see what he's doing? Yeah. It's the same. The disciples saw the same thing, right? We see in verse 22 that they remembered this. After he died, they remembered this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples remembered the impact of Jesus cleaning out the temple. The scripture that was quoted there is, the zeal for my father's house will consume me. They remembered that. They remembered that Jesus said, on three days I will raise up the temple. Yvonne. Yeah, uh, in case you didn't hear Vaughn, that they were also actively looking, they were starving for something more than what they were getting from, especially the Roman government at that time. Uh, the persons were, 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 were looking for something, and that's where Jesus fit in. Um, and, and we also, I mean, on that tangent, we catch glimpses in Acts on that Jesus wasn't, the movement that Jesus spurred wasn't just unique, right? That there were other movements, other people who gained followers. Uh, but then when those leaders died, what happened? Everyone just dissipated. But with Jesus, Gamaliel gives that counsel that uh, if, if this is from God, we could easily be finding ourselves working against God. And again, like Tom pointed out, John is writing this gospel many years after. What happened? And he's looking back, and he's calling out all these different signs, and he's doing this purpose that we may believe. Verse 23. Would someone read 23, 24, and 25 for us? So, how many people saw signs that Jesus did? Many people. And the result of those signs was what? Belief. Throughout John, we're going to continue to see Signs, belief. Signs, belief. But it's also interesting. John also points out testimony throughout his entire gospel. We saw it especially there in chapter 1. What do we read here in verse 25? Did Jesus need any testimony concerning man? Yeah. Yeah, he knew what man was, right? We need testimonies because we do not understand God, right? We do not know God, so we need testimonies witness from other people who know him. However, the fact that God does not need witness concerning man shows what? He knows us. He knows us. And that's so, so neat. Um, um, a, a, a thought that I had described to me a while back was uh, when Jesus was here, he was able to be man's advocate for God. He was God in the presence of 
man. Now that Jesus has ascended, he is man's advocate for God. And it's just that role that Jesus plays, he uniquely plays, and that he doesn't need witness, he doesn't need testimony on man. He knows man. But we need that testimony so that we may believe in him. Yeah, and that's kind of like mirrors off of what Don was saying. John's lesson last week was discussing conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom of the day showed that all this shouldn't have happened. But it did. And we are blinded by our conventional wisdom. And again, kind of goes back to we want to argue that point that we miss it, right? Why did Cliff spend 25 minutes talking about alcoholic versus non-alcoholic wine last week? Because that's the argument we want to have. We want to go through and argue that. And I'm not, I'm not on either side. But we completely miss the point when we bring that up. When we bring up, um, what is it, Ephesians 5.19, we go to that verse for instrumental versus non-instrumental music, or Colossians 3.19, right? Both of them. But that's not the point that Paul is making in those verses. And by going to those verses to argue the point, we're completely diluting the word. Now, and if, you want to, if we want to have the instrumental music argument, um, that's, not, that's completely outside of Paul's realm of, of thought here because that is so foreign to the first century church that it wouldn't even be a question that they were asking. Instead, Paul was using them to be fill each other with the Holy Spirit by doing this, that, and the other. I'm getting way off subject here. But cool stuff. Chapter 3. we got a few minutes here. We'll begin this story. We'll uh, set the stage for Cliff to really jump into it. Next week, Lord willing. But someone read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. Thank you. So we see this story here. John is transitioning, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Because why? Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus? He saw something, and what did he see? We can see from the question that he asked in verse 2. He has this truth, and this truth is no one can do these signs unless what? Unless God is with them. So he saw these signs. And what was he having trouble connecting those signs with? Belief in Jesus. He was having trouble connecting those dots. It was so wide for him. That, wait, 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 wait. I, I know this stuff. This stuff is getting pretty familiar. Uh, I gotta go talk to this guy. What time of day did he come and talk to Jesus? What's the significance of John including he came to Jesus at night? To be secretive. What'd you say, Kenny? Yeah, he was doing it at nighttime when he was alone. There's a, an interesting in the cultural uh, time. Um, uh, the, 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 this culture is very much an honor and shame culture. And we see it throughout the debates that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Um, they try to get the uh, intellectual upper hand, right? It's that we're going to have a debate, and I'm going to sweep the floor with you. Uh, in reality, Jesus swept the floor with the Pharisees, um, and they got all mad to the point where they even banded together with the Sadducees, and Jesus swept the floor with all them. Um, but that all happened during the day. Nicodemus comes at night. And with the fact that he's coming at night means that he has genuine intention here. But go back to chapter 1. 
Jesus is referred to and alluded to as what? Contrasted with night. Light, right? Did Nicodemus have belief in Jesus or a fully formed belief in Jesus? Without Jesus, it's nighttime, right? It's darkness when Jesus is not there. Jesus wasn't there with Nicodemus. He was searching. He was seeking, but he didn't have Jesus. So it was nighttime. He saw these signs. He was struggling to grasp them. And it came at night when we're away from Jesus. And then Jesus, again, he was asked a question, right? Nicodemus asked him a question. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered. And what did Jesus answer? Did Jesus answer his question? No, not at all. Jesus starts talking about being born again. Did Nicodemus grasp it? Not at all. Not at all. Taking a step away, and we probably won't get past this point today. How can we see the kingdom of God? You have to go through the Word of God. Yeah, we, we can see the kingdom of God through the lens of Jesus, right? But if we want to see the kingdom of God uh, at some future point, what do we need to do? We need to be born again. Um, if you're confident, pull out your phone, go to Biblehub.com, and look at the word born again. Because I could argue that it's mistranslated. And I'm not a Greek guy, and, and I'll let the other Greek guys argue it. Um, but this word also shows up. Jump to um, John chapter 19, verse 11. First one there, read it for me, please. John chapter 19, verse 11. The word above is exactly where I am headed. So in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, is the way it's translated. But that Greek word, um, anothen, is, we see it again in verse 7, that Greek word, anothen. We see it in chapter 19, verse 11, chapter 19, verse 23, chapter 1, verse 13. In every other area, every other place, it's referenced from above. So if we use that, Jesus is answering Nicodemus' question. It says, unless one is born from above. Does that change the way we look at that verse a little bit? Now, I don't think it discounts, excuse me, the um, born again, because we are born again. But if we're consistent with how that word is used, it would be born from above. And it's that same word that John uses um, throughout his first epistle. First um, John chapter 2, it's in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. We see that the point is that God is the source of this new birth. And Jesus ties it here with the Spirit. I said I wouldn't, we wouldn't get past chapter 3, but I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. And, and just to, this, this, the, the, the born again, that's not something new to me. Um, Dan Owen, uh, who's a teacher at Bear Valley, um, he's just phenomenal. Um, he discusses that in depth, that, that born from above. Um, and he's a dude who's just digs in, and I mean, you could, you could probably talk Greek 
Um, and he's the one um, where I learned that from. Born from above. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why did Nicodemus, though, take it? Wait, how, how am I going to be born again? Took it literally from a physical sense. Is that what Jesus intended? No. Not at all. But we see this contrast on born, 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 physical versus spiritual. And Jesus answers and says, unless one is born of both water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so we see this connection with this born again, this born from above with the spirit. Do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So with it, everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word for wind there, um, does anyone have a footnote associated with that word? Pneuma, pneumatos, and it's translated, it means spirit, right? So, we see here, born, 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 born. Spirit, 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 spirit. What is the point that Jesus is wanting us to get? His kingdom is not of this world. I think Yvonne makes a big jump there, and I think she's spot on. That we're looking for the kingdom of flesh, right? Unless you are born of the Spirit, you are not going to see the Spirit kingdom of God. And that was something that was so mind-boggling um, to the Jews at this time, that was something so mind-boggling, excuse me, to Nicodemus, that they weren't able to grasp it. And so Jesus ties in that this wind concept or the spirit. You're not able to see the wind, the physical wind, but what can we see? The things that it moves. Can we see the spirit within us today? But what can we see? The things that it moves, right? When you see someone who, complete, who, who gives their life to Christ and, and they go from living one direction to all of a sudden, boom, taking a different route, there is something noticeably different about that person. We can't see the Spirit, but we can see the actions of the Spirit. We can't see the wind, but we can see the actions of the wind. So it is for everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus ties born again with born of the Spirit. Thoughts or, or comments or... Yes, ma'am. Yeah. It's, it's not what we are, it's who we are. And oftentimes we, <clears throat> we fail to transform. We fail to, to, to change. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, I can go back and look. Um, before I was baptized, um, my, my life prior to Christ, my life after Christ, not much different. Uh, and if you grew up in the church, you probably have a very similar experience. The only difference was on Sunday morning, you were now able to take communion. Um, and, and unfortunately, embarrassingly, that, that is the result or the extent of the change that occurred in my life at that point in time, where the only change was I could take communion. Well, now I could also pray and lead songs um, from the microphone. Um, those were the differences. Does that necessitate being born again? If we don't see the impact of the Spirit, 
and I don't want to get off in, big off into the weeds, and I'm afraid I'm going to say something that sounds different than what I'm intending. Um, but we need to transform when we are born of the Spirit. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6 uh, when he alludes to baptism as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we die to sin. What do you do to dead things? You bury them. We are buried in baptism and we're raised anew. And he goes on to say, so um, should I, I, I continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Uh, for who has died from sin can go on and living to it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm coming, coming around full circle here. We need to transform in our lives when we take on Christ in baptism. Um, <clears throat> and when we don't do that for ourselves, we can't model what that looks like to our children. And then, when we don't model what it looks like to our children, that could be why we're sitting back in 20 years from now wondering where they're at. I uh, know I took a comment and maybe ran with it. Um, Marty. And we need to, to, to model uh, those fruits in our lives. And if we aren't modeling those fruits in our lives, we've got to check our tree. If we're not bearing fruit, then we have an issue with our tree. Don. Oh. No, absolutely right. And if you didn't catch Don's comment, Nicodemus came at night. He was, he was concerned about the political pressure on what I would argue is genuinely searching Jesus. He had questions that were arisen. And he, I think, wanted honest answers to his questions. So he went to Jesus at night so that he could get honest answers. Jesus gave him an honest answer, and that honest answer is unless one is born again, unless one is born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. Any other comments before we wrap it up? Don, I think, helped put a nice little bow on things this time. If you didn't hear Bob's comment, that transformation, um, go to Colossians 3.1 and Romans 12.1 to discuss that changed life that occurs after baptism, after we receive Christ, after we are born again, born from above. That is true. If you're not changed, you have a problem. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll, we'll have a few minutes before our worship service this morning. If you bow with me, please. Father, we're thankful for this time of study. We're thankful for the, uh, the words that John has recorded for us, Father, and the, especially the story of, uh, or the account, excuse me, of Jesus clearing the temple, the result of that sign, uh, which was belief. And now this Nicodemus who's coming with, with genuine answers, genuine questions, Father, seeking answers. And it's those answers that we put our, our hope in and our faith in, Father, that if we are born again, born from above, that we may receive your spirit and, and allow it to transform us, transform our lives, and so that we may see your kingdom one day, Lord. We're thankful for this. We're thankful for your son. And uh, this prayer we ask in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.